because you know we we know by the stories. You know, there's another in the fire standing next to me. We know we we know he held the, the sea back. We know those are that those are real events that took place there. But the real event that took place that made that possible that the one who bore the one who bore the wrath of God for us. Real event that took place is something that we cannot enter into to close the gap. You know the song is talking, the gap was being closed and it's been closed that you and I can know God as intimate as God wants us to know him. We can bring us into that oneness, that high priestly prayer of Jesus on that final night recorded there in John chapter 17 when he prayed that we would be one with him even as he is one with the Father. That absolute intimacy that God has for us, the gap has been closed because there was one who was separated from God. That one being Jesus who hung upon a cross for us and God fired down his righteous wrath upon him for you and I. For you and I. As he bore our sin, he being our sin bearer and that sin was completely consumed. Isn't that a glorious thing? So you can sing that song. And you can know there is no gap between you and the most high God, the holy God. You can know that your sins have been forgiven. You can know that he is there for you. And no matter where you are right now, no matter what your fire, no matter what your war, no matter what your struggle, he's there. He's there in the midst of it. He's working. He's having his way. That should stir our hearts. Oh, that should stir our hearts, you know. Oh, we're thankful, aren't we? We are so thankful. We're thankful for Ken. Ken went through his surgery yesterday. It was the day before. Friday, days fly. You know, he's come out, what was it, five, six hours later. Triple bypass, you know, and a couple of other things going on while they were in there. And he's come out laughing, that's Ken. Brenda's exhausted, you know. But how good is our God? How wonderful is our God? Let's pray, shall we? Father in heaven, we do. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. And we thank you for the finished work of the cross and all that it has accomplished on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, that you're with us, that you're standing there, that you're having your way in the very midst of even the deepest of struggles we may face. And Lord, we pray for Ken and we thank you, Lord, that you would restore him, you would strengthen him, you would be with Brenda, you would keep her and hold her in your hands, Father. Pray for Sue and for Shane, Lord, that you would strengthen them and and anybody else within this room that is struggling with this flu, with this sickness, Lord, that you would be there and you would be our strength. I ask for Bernadette, Lord, that you would move in her life right now and you do what only you can do, Father God. Pray, Lord, you would sweep across this room and you would touch us and our deepest and greatest needs right now, Lord, and you would glorify yourself in Jesus' name. Thank you for all that you are and all that you will continue to be in our lives. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, God bless you all. If you're a visitor today, welcome. Um, We are in the book of Romans. Do you want to turn there with me? Um,
um, Romans, this uh, this epistle of Paul, where Paul is, um, you know, offering his defence for the gospel. He's laying down what the gospel is really all about. You know, I mean, last week we talked about uh, in verse seventeen, and we talked about the righteousness of God that has been unveiled, right? And how wonderful it was, wasn't it? This righteousness of God is unveiled as we, you know, as Christians, as those who have placed their faith in God, we, know, we live this life from, it says, from faith to faith. In other, words, uh, in other words, the faith that God has instilled within us at the moment we believed in Jesus Christ is the faith that God will continue to maintain and strengthen in us to the day that he takes us to be home. That's why the Bible says the just shall live by faith. And that faith that we have is deeply, is rooted in the reality that the righteousness of God, because of what Jesus did upon the cross, the righteousness of God has been unveiled to us. It has been unveiled in our lives. And, and we now stand in the very presence of God as righteous you know what righteous means it means right it's as simple as that God has made us who were wrong he has made us who were far from him he has made us right and he has brought us near and he holds us in his arms isn't that incredible and so Paul was talking about that in verse 17 and now he continues on and now he's going to talk about the wrath of God so who got up this morning and thought, I'll go to church? And uh, well, we all did, because you're here, right? <laughs> did you get up this morning? Did you read ahead? And did you know we'd be talking about the wrath of God? Welcome to church this morning. Don't fear, don't fear. If, let me ask you this question before we get into it. Let me ask this question. If we were to ask, what is the greatest problem facing mankind, you know, I'm sure that we would find a great variety of reasonings, if not in this room, by everybody that is out there. You know, it was a few, just a few years ago and still today, you know, everyone's talking about terrorism and the, the absolute threat that it brings to society. And of course, there's a continuing threat of war. Of course, the economy is always being held before us. And we look at what's happening in China. We notice what's happening in the US. And, and we've just been through an election and we worry about our economy and all those sort of things. But is that the greatest threat for humanity? Of course, corruption is everywhere, isn't it? You know, corruption is widespread. Substance abuse is something that is just crippling our societies. Overpopulation versus food production. Have you stopped and thought about that recently? I mean, that's an incredible threat against humanity. It really is. I mean, you realize that just 100 years ago, there was only 1.6 billion people on the planet. Well, 30 years from now, there will be 9 billion of us trying to find a meal. So that's a real concern. But is it the greatest threat against humanity. Now, the big ticket item today, of course, is what? Is, is global warming, right? So there's concerns about the environment. That's the big ticket event today. So what is the greatest problem that is facing humanity? Actually, I read, um, I read just last night, there is, a, there is a fund that is put together, and it's called the Longitude Prize. Has anybody read about the Longitude Prize? It's a prize, <laughs> excuse me, a fund of some 10, bill, 10, 10, 10 million, a paltry 10 million pounds, right? 
that is offered to solve man's biggest problems. And then you go and read about the Longitude Prize and they have a whole list of things. It's all of the list that I just read out to you and a couple of more things thrown into boot. And I think about it, $10 million is not a whole lot, is it? You know, to solve the world's greatest problems. But of course, the thing that has plagued humanity from the very beginning is not on any of their lists, is it? It's certainly not even on the list that I've shared with you because it's not physical, it's not a tangible problem, although it does have physical and tangible ramifications and certainly it does affect all of those lists that people hold up as the greatest threat to humanity, that it is true, but without any question. And you all know the answer and are wondering why I'm taking so long to get to it, right? You all know the answer that the greatest threat against humanity, of course, is man's sin. Sin is serious, isn't it? You know, sin soils the soul, we like, or we don't like to say, but we say it scars our conscience, you know. And ultimately, sin, what it does, it separates us from God. You go back into the prophet Isaiah and he says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, nor is his ear heavy that he cannot hear. But he says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he cannot hear you. The Bible teaches that sin is unrighteousness. The Bible teaches us that sin is deceitful. It appears to be something that it isn't. It appears to be good, but in reality we know that it is bad. It claims to satisfy, but it just leaves us all wanting, doesn't it? If you have tried to find satisfaction in its realms, you know. Think about it. A lie. Think about a society. A lie has become an accepted way of influencing people. Have you realized that? Have you noticed that? You know, drunkenness is a disease. Homosexuality is just an alternative lifestyle. Paul's going to talk about these things in the rest of this chapter. We won't get there today. But what the Bible does is it bluntly calls it what it is. It is iniquity. They're an abomination. He said it is ungodliness. Sin is a transgression of God's holy law. And it matters not what mankind or what our governments will seek to do to legislate godless behavior and make it acceptable. It matters not. God's moral law is unchanging, isn't it, Christian? It will never change. What did John say in 1 John chapter 3? He said, whoever commits sin commits lawlessness he said sin is lawlessness so without question sin is the greatest peril for mankind but I want to suggest to you this morning that there is a condition in mankind that only serves to magnify that peril Which I believe is one of the reasons that the Apostle Paul presents his defense of the gospel as he does here in in, in Romans. I'll come to it. But as I pointed out last week, we will spend, I hope you're up for this, we're going to spend the next three chapters, well Paul will spend the next three chapters proving that whatever we are or were, wherever we were from, 
whatever our life experience may have been, whatever we have done, along with all of mankind, the Bible declares that we were guilty before a holy God and we deserve judgment for our sin. Paul starts here, you know. His purpose here in this opening chapter um, is revealed when we get to the third chapter. We looked at this last week, but you know where you know God, where it says we will say in chapter three and verse uh, four, he will say, "Let God be, let God be true, and every man a liar." He will say, "So that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world will become or be proven to be guilty before God." Why? For all have sinned. You know the verses, don't you? And have fallen short of the glory of God. So as I finished last week, Paul is going to delve deep into the willful depravity of man's rebellion against God. And the reason he does this is because, as I stated just a moment ago, there is a condition in man that only serves to magnify the peril that mankind is in. Do you know what that condition in man is? It's simple. It's very simple. Is that men don't think they're sinners. Mankind doesn't think they're sinners. In fact, there are a great number of people today that don't believe that sin exists, that there is such a thing as sin. So you, Christian, can go out into the streets and with powerful conviction and a burden upon your heart, you know, a, a heart weeping for the lost. You can go out in the street and you can tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can tell them that Jesus came and died for their sins. You can tell them the entire gospel of Christ. And most of them out there are going to say, what sin? What are you talking about? Most of them out there are going to say, why do I need to be saved? Most of them are going to say, you know, going to think, well, what is this issue? I don't have this issue that you talk about. Most of them out there don't know that they're lost. Don't know that they're lost. So why, think about it, why wouldn't they think that your claims to this gospel that Paul says is the power of God unto salvation, why wouldn't they think that your claims to this gospel is nothing more than the rantings of, of the fanatical. If they don't believe that they're sinners, if they don't know that they're separated from God, because they don't know the peril that they are in. Why wouldn't they? Have you thought about that? Why wouldn't they? You know, and more often than not, when you go out and you preach this gospel for the need of the forgiveness of sin, that we might be accepted to God. When you go out and preach this gospel, the claims of the gospel that they are sinners, more often than not, people are offended at the mere suggestion that they are sinners. Have you come across that? How dare you? I remember one, one you know, we would say saintly old woman. Because she was the nicest lady, has lived the best of lives. She was 90, I think she was 92 when she said these words to me. We were sitting around and we had just sung with a group of old people, Amazing Grace. I've probably told you this story before. You know the words to Amazing Grace? Once was lost, but now I'm found. And it says what? About a what? A wretch like me? And this, this woman looked at me 
and said, I hate that song because I am no wretch, you know. And refused to accept that her personal goodness and achievements of her life could any way, in any way other be measured than goodness. Goodness, you know. So if you go up into a, to the street and you tell a person the gospel of Jesus Christ and they don't know, they don't know that they are sinners, they don't understand that God is holy and that they are separated from him, what's the point? What's the point they think, you know? Here's the thing. Maybe, we'll give them a bit of leeway, a bit of leeway. Maybe a person may agree, you know, well, everybody does wrong, right? You know, from time to time. They'll agree to that. But you know what most people out there are insisting? Most people are insisting that we are good by nature. Have you heard that said? They were good by nature. But if that is true, I've got questions to ask. You know? If that is true, if we are good by our very nature, then why, why do we have arguments? Why do we have assaults in the street? Why are we at war all the time? If that is true, that we are good by our very nature, then why do we need governments? Why do we need police? Why do we need a military? Why do we need to put locks on our doors? Let's bring it home, right? Why do we need to put locks on our doors? Why do we worry about our children when they're out of our sight? Why do we invest in security cameras? Why do we hide our money in a safe place? Why do we have high walls around those dangerous places where we put the bad people? Why are there armed guards? I've got a list. Why are there armed guards escorting money from one bank to another bank, you know? For that matter, why are there homeless people out there if we are good by our very nature? Why are there homeless people out there in the streets? And why do we walk past them in the streets and pretend that we don't see them? Why are there hungry people at all if we are all good by our very nature? Why are there the ridiculously wealthy contrasted with the, with the incredibly impoverished in this world? Why don't we pick up hitchhikers when they're walking in the rain? Think about it. Why, why, why if we are all good people by nature? We're not, that's why. This is what Jesus said. Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 3, he says in verse 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. When he said the light has come into the world, of course he's talking about himself, but he's talking about the light of his Gospel, the Gospel of God's forgiveness for mankind. And so he says, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light. Why? For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil, what does he say? He says, hates light and does not come to the light. Why? For the fear that his deeds will be exposed. I mean, you take this and you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 6. You go back, you know, prior to the flood. And God speaks about the sinful condition of man's heart. There's a devastating verse there in chapter 5 of Genesis 6 where it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness 
of man was great on the earth. And hear this. He said, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only to do evil continually. Doesn't sound like a people that are all good at their heart. It does it, you know. That's why Paul begins here. And that's why I'm pausing here this morning. I'm only going to get halfway through this verse and next week we'll launch into the rest of the chapter. But that's why Paul begins with this hard, and it is hard, but it's a hard, hard, challenging reminder. And he will go on to say that the primary struggle, if we want to be honest this morning, the primary struggle for unbelievers is not really, he will will unfold this next week, is not really a lack of evidence for the existence of God, no, 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 but is their love of the things in defiance against God. We haven't read our verse, have we? Sorry. Read with me verse 18. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godliness and unrighteousness of men. I'm sure that's as far as we're going to get. But keep reading with me. It's revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly, clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they, he says, they are without excuse. So you stop and you think about man's rebellion. You stop and you think about atheism. You stop and you think about evolution. You stop and you think about the hedonistic values of the society that we live in. You stop and you think about this whole gender fluidity thing that's going on. You stop and you think about the gay marriage issue, the great debate that's happened over the past years. You think about this whole sense of entitlement. Have you seen that? This whole sense of entitlement that we see in the society that we live And every single one of these issues is an excuse for the fact that people love their sin and they hate God and they refuse to be held accountable to it. They will not accept their guilt. And that's why the Bible teaches. That's why the Bible teaches that all people, to the exclusion of none, save one who walked righteously upon this earth, Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible teaches that all people are sinners by nature, a nature that has been passed on to the descendants of Adam. He is our federal head, the Bible teaches. And the thing about Adam, and the thing about any mankind, is he can only pass on what he's got to give. Isn't that right? That's all you can give. That's why there's little yous running around that have children. They look like you. They sound like you. They act like you. It's amazing, isn't it? You've only got to give what you've got to give. That's all the next generation can receive. And that's why the Bible teaches us from Adam has been passed on to us his nature, his fallen nature, when he rebelled against God. So Romans will open this up and explore this. We're going to get to the fifth chapter 
and we're going to read through one man's sin. Sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. Why? Because all of sin, he'll go on to say, through the one man's disobedience that many or all were made sinners. So this is what Paul is doing. To convince people of their need of the gospel, Romans sets about convincing us that without Christ, we're lost sinners. Without Christ, we're guilty before God. Without Christ, the wrath of God rests upon us. Now that's not a pleasant, popular message, is it? I mean, let me ask you, when was the last time anybody talking about the wrath of God? Yeah, it doesn't happen much, does it? Someone wrote this. They said, in order to make you see your need of the gospel, you must first realise that you have done wrong. In order to understand the good news, you have to grasp the bad news that before God's holiness, you are, what? Guilty. You see, without the bad news, let me say this, without the bad news, people, the gospel makes no sense. Without the bad news, the cross has no purpose. For if we are not sinners under the wrath of God, then there's no reason for Christ to become our sin bearer. There's no reason for the cross. If mankind is basically good, as most people believe, then the gospel is unnecessary. So what Romans is doing is saying, you need to understand God's holy Lord. You need to understand that you have broken it. You have defiled godliness. You have defiled righteousness. That's what the Ten Commandments are. The first four of the Ten Commandments are about our relationship to God, aren't they? And we've defiled godliness. The second half of the commandments are in our relationship against mankind. We have defiled righteous standards of God. We've all broken those laws of godliness. We've all defiled the righteousness of God. And we need to understand that. You can't be saved if you don't understand that. That's why there is a soft gospel out there that simply says Jesus loves you and if you walk with him, he'll make your life better. Well, that's not what it's about. It's about being forgiven. It's about being brought back into a right relationship with a holy God. You need to understand that by breaking God's law, God's wrath is resting upon you. We love John 3.16, don't we? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believe on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through his son the world might be, you might be saved. Right? We love that. But have you ever read to the end of the chapter? Have you ever kept on reading? Because you get down to verse 36 and it says this. He sums it up. He said, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, and the wrath of God is resting upon him. Presently resting upon him. Understand that. You see, most people, let me harp upon this, most people think on the whole that they're pretty good people, right? Right? 
As far as they have concerned, they have, con- they have committed no great crime. So how could God possibly have a problem with a decent guy like me? That's how most people live. But that highlights the problem. You know that? It really does. It highlights the problem. It's not about the standards that I set or the standards that you set and living up to those standards. The issue is that no one has met the standards of a holy God. Now people get all upset when you start talking about God like this, don't they? You know, they really do. And it's like God's not allowed to have any standards. Why? Because God is love. Isn't that right? After all, they say God is love and he is not angry with sinners. Well, yes, God is love. That is true. The Bible impresses that upon our hearts over and over again. But you read throughout the Bible, God loves what is good, but you cannot love what is good without hating that which is evil. So you can't hold to that holiness of God without accepting an absolute opposition to all that is wicked and sinful by God. See, the absolute love of God, actually what it does, if you stop and you be honest, what it does, it verifies, or is yes, it is verified by God's hatred of sin. Think about it. Let's bring it home to us. Think about it. If I say to you, I love you, you've heard me say that, haven't you? If I say to you, I love you, But then I go and I turn a blind eye to someone that is stealing from you or turn a blind eye to someone who is slandering you or somebody who is inflicting harm upon you. What does that say about my I love you? Well, it denies that I have any love at all, doesn't it? That's what it does. And what about showing mercy? What about showing forgiveness? You can't be merciful. You can't be forgiving if you don't love them and hate what they have done against you. There can be no mercy. There can be no mercy. So to say God loves everyone but has no anger towards sin, that's irrational thinking. It's irrational thinking. A God who cannot be angry is a God who cannot have mercy, who cannot show forgiveness. What about justice? What is justice? Justice is to make things right. You demand justice, don't you? We all demand justice. Of course we do. Because we get upset, don't we? When injustice happens in and around us. Some of you will go rushing, rushing home today to watch a, field, a football match, right? Won't you? Because you are going to see the Eagles beat Sydney Swans. That's what you are going to do. But here's the thing. You want justice when the umpire doesn't do the right thing, right? You look at those fans around that football field. You see the indignation that starts to be poured out when there's injustice taking place upon the football field and the umpire doesn't do the right thing. No, we demand justice. We expect him to be just because it's very important, right? We expect him to be just. And we expect the judges in our courts, don't we, to be just. 
How often have you seen the indignation of people outside a courthouse when they do not believe that the judge was just? And somebody who was guilty got away with something. We expect justice. We need to see and understand. Let me say first, if that's true of us, then why don't we allow God to be just? Why is he not allowed to be just? We need to see, let me say it, and understand that God's wrath is in complete agreement with his love. It really is. In fact, it's essential to his character. God cannot show himself to be indifferent to sin because if he did, he would not be God. He would not be loving. Do you understand that? So verse 18 says... Look at that time. So verse 18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. Can you give me a few more minutes? What is this wrath that I've been talking about? What is it exactly? Well, the world conjures up ideas of explosive rage, don't they? When we talk about wrath. You know, the explosive rage against sinful men. We don't say wrath, we say wrath, right? Get a real guttural, it's the wrath of God, right? And what we do is we think that God is unleashing his indignation without restraint, without restraint at all, without control. We think that God is opening up the floodgates of his anger and he's allowing it to consume all that get in its path. I've even heard Christians talk like this, talk about unbelievers. You unbelievers, the people that don't believe you, this you that have spurned my attempts to teach you about Christ and his love, you, you're going to get yours. God's wrath is coming. I've heard Christians do that, you know. No, it's the wrath of almighty God. That's how we like to view it. And I guess, you know, well, it is, by the way, but I guess it might be because it's easy for us to relate this idea of wrath uh, to the wrath of man. Have you seen the wrath of man? You know, there's plenty of out of control examples that I could cite before you right now. But here's the thing. When the Bible refers to the wrath of man, it uses in the New Testament, it uses this Greek word thumos. We get our word thermometer from it. And this word thumos in, in the Greek has the idea of red, hot, raging, burning, fueled anger. And when it's talking about a man, mankind. It's when a person loses their control. And in the loss of their control, they inflict damage upon others. That's the wrath of man. But when the scripture speaks about the wrath of God, it doesn't use that thumos word. It uses another word, word which is orge, and it speaks of a controlled purpose. It's not God blowing his stack. It's not God indiscriminately annihilating people, but it's God's wrath. It is settled, it is pure, it is determined, it has a response to the righteousness of God 
being violated. It is steadfast. It is steady. It is absolute. It is in opposition to evil. We see it throughout the scripture. See, so often we just think of the wrath of God and we're looking forward to the tribulation, aren't we? Because we've read those chapters in Revelation after chapter 6 and we see some pretty bad things happening in a world, the world to come. We see that and that's how we put the wrath of God. We put it over there for a future dispensation. We don't understand that the wrath of God is a continual unveiling. And it always has been. Always has been. We see it throughout the scripture where God is shown to love righteousness and hate wickedness. That's why it says God's wrath is revealed. It's the same word that we saw last week when it said that God's righteousness was revealed. Remember the word? Apocalypto. We get our word apocalypse from. It's an unveiling. And it's in a continuous sense. It's not something just for a future dispensation, but God's wrath has been unveiling. Yes, it's wonderful last week, wasn't it? We looked at the righteousness of God that's been unveiled in us through faith in what Jesus Christ has done. We are are seen as righteous before the presence of God. We love that. We live from faith to faith. The just live by faith and we stand in the righteousness of the unveiled Righteousness of God attributed to us. But here, it's exactly the same word. God's wrath is being unveiled against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So this continual unveiling, it's something that has always been present in human history. The rest of this chapter is going to talk about it. The rest of the chapter is going to talk about it, you know. Bottom line is, man doesn't get away with sin. That's the bottom line. What's that spiritual law that we have in Galatians chapter 6? Sow unto the flesh, and of the flesh you shall reap corruption. When you look at what alcohol and drugs is doing to our society, you look at what promiscuity is doing to our society, you look at what greed and selfishness does to this world, you know what they're doing? And they always have done. They've been attracting the wrath of God's Judgment. It's being unveiled, you know. Heaven's ongoing revelation. And yes, it will culminate in that final judgment described in the book of Revelation. That is true. But here's the thing. This is what I want you to know. It will always be controlled. God's wrath is always purposeful. And we have to realise this, please realise, I've got to leave you at least in a good place, right? Realise that even in God's wrath, God is extending grace to people. That they might turn away from sin and come back to him. Here's the simple message this morning. If you are not clothed in God's righteousness, then the wrath of God abides upon you. Do you understand that? If you haven't given your life to God, if you don't know that you're a sinner who has violated the laws of a holy God, there is a measured, purposeful response of God's righteousness towards sin. And it's wrath. 
And so God cries out, doesn't he? 2,000 years ago. This is where I started this morning. Two year thousand, the greatest display of God's wrath, where? The cross. Yeah. 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, If the Son of Man shall be lifted up, he shall draw all men unto him. And he was talking about the cross. He was lifted up upon the cross. Can we end here this morning? He was lifted up upon the cross, and I'll say it again. A holy God. That's why that song that we were singing, you know, he walks with us. We'll never be alone. That's why it's so powerful. Because the Son of God took upon him all that is evil and all that is wicked. And I can only say it like I said it before. The Holy God fired his holy righteous wrath upon him. That's all I can say. I can't understand that. I can't enter into the depths of that. I know the provision has been made for you and I to receive and accept the forgiveness of God for our sin, that we might experience the unveiling of God's righteousness in our lives, and God will give you the power to be called the sons and daughters of the Most High God. If you're not a Christian this morning, please come and talk to me afterwards. I'd love to tell you about this great love that God has for all mankind. So we're going to pick it up here next week. Halfway through this verse. Halfway through this verse. we got half a verse. How great is that? Screaming along. It's only 16 chapters to go. We'll get there. No, next week he's going to begin to unfold how this is being manifest in the world. And we're going to look at some very, very curly, prickly subjects next week. Amen? That's, that should be a little bit... Yeah. All right, God bless you. Um, are we finishing right here and right now? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you.